have your Bibles, go ahead and grab your Bibles out this morning. If you're here with us today for the first time, I want to greet you. My name is Jay Duncan. I'm the senior pastor of Antioch Church. And uh, boy, I tell you, there's no other place on the planet I'd rather be than this house and this family of believers, this community of faith. Uh, I posted something on Facebook a couple of nights ago. I was just so overwhelmed with a tremendous sense of honor in my heart that the Lord would plant me here in this body of people. And I just want to tell you uh, how fondly and how affectionately my wife and myself and my family and the staff here at Antioch, how, how deeply and affectionately we feel towards you. We carry you in our hearts and uh, we love every single one of you deeply. Those who have been a part of the family for years and those who may be checking us out or those who may have just recently joined the family of Antioch Church, uh, I'm so blessed to be a part of this body. We've been on a series that we began last week called Tending Your Garden, Tending Your Garden. And I'm gonna explain what that means the title of that series and the focus of that series came out of a prophetic warning that we got from our Watchman team. By the way, how many of you joined the Freedom Training Center Watchman training class yesterday? Let me just see hands. Boy, I tell you, I walked in a mod queue and there was about 60 people in there getting trained to go to another level of engagement, go into another level of prayer, of offensive living in the spirit. And I am proud of you. I know that this church is going to go to another level because of that training. I wish Betty was here this morning. She's actually not feeling very well, so we just pray blessing and health on Betty. She so wanted to be here, but she poured it out yesterday, and Susan Ogden poured it out yesterday, and I know that we're going to be the recipients of that impartation and that revelation that they gave us on how to be more offensive in watching over the scope and the sphere of influence that God's given to us. But a few weeks ago, I had, a, I had a warning, a prophetic warning from some of our Watchmen team that we needed to go to another level of watching over the house, of protecting the house, of watching over our families, of watching over our children. And so I took that to heart. I actually had another series lined up and, we, and I just I felt a real impression to push pause on that and start the series on tending your garden so that we could lay out really an apostolic and a prophetic trumpeting call for all of us to rally around a greater measure and a greater sense of praying into and praying over the scope of responsibilities that God has given to us. So we laid a foundation for that last week. You can watch that online. We actually now have videos, video podcasts uh, online on our website now at antioch.is. So uh, that's just taken our production of the, the message of the kingdom to another level. So you can watch this online, last week's message. Today, we're going to talk about tending the garden of your life. Remember, in the kingdom, everything begins from the inside out. Everything begins with your heart. Everything begins not with mechanics. Everything begins with the inside reality and the inside dynamic of what God is doing on a heart level in your life. The foundational premise for this is found in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus is explaining the principles of the kingdom and he uses the analogy of a garden and a seed. The garden being our heart, the seed being the truths of the, of the kingdom and the word of God. Today, we're gonna focus a little bit uh, more intensely on how do we watch over our lives. So if you go to Genesis 2.15, I'm gonna do about a four minute summary of last week and then we're gonna pick up on watching and guarding the garden of our lives. Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The NIV says to take care of it. That word, that phrase to take care of that the NIV uses is a word in the Hebrew called shamar, which means to protect. It means to guard. It means to observe it means to watch and to restrain. It means to have charge of. And so right off the bat, what we discover here is as God places humanity in a field or in an assignment, he gives mankind two primary responsibilities. The assignment that I give to you, number one, is everything that I give to you, steward it. That's what the word here means where it says to, uh, I, I placed him in the garden to work it. It means steward it. It means make it better. 
Everything that God gives to us, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a possession, whether it's time, whether it's an assignment, essentially God is saying, everything I'm handing over to your responsibility, I want you to steward it, work it, learn it, master it until you make it better, make it fruitful, make it grow. Number two, he says, every assignment that I'm, every field of responsibility I'm putting you in, not only do I want you to steward it, I want you to protect it. I want you to fight for it. And the implication there very simply is, is that we are in a war and we have an enemy. If we were not in a war and if we did not have an enemy, God will not give us the primary command to fight over that which he has given to us. And we had this adage last week that we mentioned anything that's worth cultivating is worth fighting for. Anything that is worth stewarding is worth protecting. And so we're going to talk about, again, following the pattern of how the kingdom operates, we're going to talk about tending or protecting and watching over the garden of our own lives. Last week, we mentioned the fact that the word to watch, we have defined simply as to give specific attention to for a specific purpose. So yesterday, we had a number of people that were in our Freedom Training Center class on learning how to be watchmen. And essentially, they talked about different areas and different levels and spheres of how to participate in specifically giving attention for specific purposes. Today, we're going to talk about giving specific attention to our lives, giving specific attention to the things that we think about, giving specific attention to the condition and the nature of our heart. If you're following along with me in the scriptures, turn with me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 14. We're going to look at verse 8. And verse 15, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 8 and verse 15. Proverbs 14, verse 8 very simply says, The wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to their ways. The wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to their ways. Another translation says to give thought to their steps. In other words, pay attention to the path that you're on. Pay attention to the reality that what you think about will become a habit and a habit will turn into a character and a character will turn into a lifestyle. Never dismiss any small thing that is happening in your life because those small decisions actually determine your destiny. Your decisions determine your direction and your direction determines your destiny. And I know that may sound pep rally-ish or cliche-ish, but it really is true. The small decisions that you are making, they create a way of life. They create a pattern of life and they determine a course of life. And that course of life will take you to certain places in the spirit and in this world. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 15 says, a simple man believes anything, but the prudent man gives thought to his steps. Don't be someone who just believes anything. Don't be someone who's just naive. You know, when I was young, I made a very foolish mistake. I was in the fifth grade. My father was away in the field. And my mother had told me that morning, she said, your father's going to be calling us. So I want you to come straight home after school. That day, I had received some, some accolades. I received this, uh, this little badge. I was, I was noted the, uh, the VIP of the, of the fifth grade class. And man, I was, I was flying high. I was so proud of myself. I was so excited. I was so ready to celebrate my accomplishments. I had a young friend of mine who was actually, um, his mom and my mom were really good friends. In, uh, in the military base there in Germany that we were at, really small community, everything was in walking distance. They had a, a youth center and a youth activity center. They had pool tables there and video games. And I loved going to that place because you didn't have to put any quarters into the machines. They just, they, they rigged them to where you could just go in and, and you, I could play Kung Fu Master for hours. It was before the days of Nintendo. And so I was walking home I had my marching orders. I knew that my path was set. My mom said, don't you go anywhere else. You come straight home. Your father's going to call. He'd been away for months. And I had a young friend of mine come and he said, hey, your mom told my mom that uh, she's going over to my house today and uh, that we could go hang out at the, at the youth activity center and that we could just go to my house afterwards. And I thought, really? Awesome. And so without giving it a second thought, without giving any more thought to my ways, without giving any prudence to my steps, I went straight to that activity center and I stayed there for hours. 
Well, unbeknownst to me, that was a lie. My friend had not heard from his mom. My mom had not talked to his mom. And as I was walking home, very proud of myself, very excited, at about 5.30 in the afternoon, I see a woman, a figure, coming up very quickly down the street. And I notice, with great discernment, <laughs> discernment that was missing about four hours prior, I think I recognize that shadowy figure that's looming upon me with great fierce quickness. And needless to say, I, I learned a very hard but a very good lesson. And that lesson very simply is give prudence to your steps. Pay attention to who you're listening to. Don't just believe anything. The simple believe anything, but the prudent will pay attention to their lives. They'll pay attention to what's going on inside of them. They'll pay attention to the decisions that they're making on a regular basis. Write this down for your notes if you're taking notes this morning. In order for us to tend the garden of our lives, we must be willing to confront the brutal facts. There's a great business book by Jim Collins called Good to Great. And in that book, he essentially says, if you have an organization that is not functioning well, it's not being productive, then one of the hardest things a leader has to do is confront the brutal facts. Well, that's not just a principle that applies to business, that's a principle that applies to life. If you're not experiencing the fruitfulness of sonship, if you're not experiencing the fruitfulness of the kingdom, it, it behooves us to confront the brutal facts of our lives. And we're going, today's gonna to be a very sobering message as we talk about by the fear of the Lord and by the help of the Holy Spirit, how do we examine our lives so that we can keep the garden of our lives free from the weeds that uh, take us out, free from the pain of the past, free from the attitudes, the poison, the toxins, uh, the belief systems, the worldviews of this life that have the potential to take us out. But in order to do that, we have to be able and willing and courageous to confront the brutal facts. Thought number one on that is you can't tend what you can't see. You can't tend what you can't see. Things that happen on the external, things that happen on the surface of our lives, in some ways those are very easy to detect, but when we're talking about heart issues, when we're talking about wounds of the past, when we're talking about mindsets and belief systems, it's very difficult to address those things. In fact, Dennis Peacock has an adage, you can't fight what you can't see. You can't fight what you can't see. Psalm 139 Verse 23 through 24, very important verse. I began praying this verse uh, in high school as a young kid. Psalm 139, verse 23 says, Search me, O God, test me. Know my heart. See if there are any anxious thoughts within me. See if there is any offensive way inside of me and lead me in the way everlasting. The implication of this prayer, very simply, is we don't know our thoughts to the full measure of what is happening inside of our minds. We don't know what's really going on in our hearts. In fact, as I was preparing for this this week, I just pulled out my journal and had some just heart time with God. And I said, Lord, would you show me the motivations of my heart? Show me what's really happening. Show me the condition, the ecosystem of the inner world, the inner space. There was a great book I discovered in college called Ordering Your Private World by Gordon MacDonald. And that book taught me how to give attention. And it starts off in this book, Ordering Your Private World. And one of the chapters is called The Sinkhole Syndrome. It told this story, I believe it was in San Francisco, of how cars were going down this particular road and all of a sudden the, the, the whole road just began to cave in. And the principle behind that is, is if the pressure of life is greater than the infrastructure to sustain it, then you will bottom out, burn out, or blow up. And the only way that we can prevent ourselves from bottoming out, burning out, or blowing up is paying attention and giving attention to the state, the infrastructure of our inner world. And my question to you today, church, is how much time do you devote to putting your eyes on the condition of your heart? 
How much time do you devote to paying attention to your thought patterns? How much time do you give to evaluating with the help and the revelation of the Holy Spirit habits and patterns that might be destructive to you or your family or those that are in your sphere of influence? We don't know our hearts. We don't know our thoughts without the help of the Holy Spirit. In fact, scripture says the heart is deceitfully wicked. Our human heart, remember the mind justifies what the heart has chosen. Our heart with the sinful carnal nature inside of us has the keen ability to deceive our minds. Our hearts must be redeemed by the powerful blood of Jesus. You know, on one side of the coin, when we look at different things that are happening throughout the world, sometimes there are some things that happen that just, they're so appalling. They're so mind boggling. And on one side of the coin, you say, how could that ever happen? And on the other side of the coin, you totally know how that could happen without the restraint and the government of the Holy Spirit inside of us. I would be an ugly, wicked man without the government of God inside of my life. I need the Spirit of God having residence in my heart because I am fully aware or I'm becoming fully aware of the wickedness inside of me. There was a pastor's conference that took place in Seoul, Korea. There was a man there by the name of Paul Young Cho, one of the pastors of the largest churches in the world. And he was hosting a pastor's conference and he was speaking on prayer and he was talking about his own personal disciplines of prayer. And one of the pastors asked him, they said, why do you pray so much, Dr. Cho? A little bit of an odd question coming from a pastor, but maybe a little bit of a telling question. And, pa- and Pastor Cho said, I don't pray because I'm righteous. I pray so much because I am aware of how wicked I am. I don't pray so that I can say, look how, look how much I've prayed. Look how great I am. Look how good I am. Look how clean and righteous I am. He says, I, I am very acutely aware of the reality of what is in me And so I must invest that time with God to combat that. I am fully aware of the corruption that's inside of me. And that, my friends, is why I pray and combat the works of the flesh inside of me. Number two, you can't can't tend what you don't know. Our seeing leads us to revelation. Number of months ago, uh, I talked about this principle of unconscious incompetency, which is, which is simply, you don't know what you don't know. How can you change what you're not aware of inside of you? How can you change what you don't have revelation of? In fact, in uh, the premarital counselings that I've done, the marital counselings that I've done, most marital issues most times deal with this issue of one spouse or the other just simply is not aware of something that is going on in their lives. And they're not aware of how this blind spot is affecting their spouse or their children. And if they have become aware, they've become to a place where they're simply not willing to deal with it, which we'll get to next. In 2008, by the leadership of the Holy Spirit, I discovered a book called The Way of the Heart. The Way of the Heart by a man by the name of Henry Nowen. Let me read a very quick excerpt for you here in this book. Henry Nowen talks about Uh, a concept that he calls the false compulsive self. The false compulsive self. He says, we have indeed to fashion our own desert where we can withdraw every day and we can shake off our compulsion and dwell in the gentle healing presence of the Lord. Without such a place, we will lose our soul while preaching the gospel to others. But with such a spiritual abode, we will become increasingly conformed to him in whose name we minister. There are three compulsions of the world. There is the compulsion to be relevant. Satan told Jesus, turn these stones to bread. What are the things that you do that are not characteristic of who you really are? What are the things that you do that stand in contradiction to who Christ is because of an unhealthy need inside of you to become relevant? One of the great tensions that's happening in the church world right now is the tension of relevance. And I just so happen to believe that if we could be people of the spirit who walk in the spirit, who walk in our sonship, who preach the gospel of truth with love and compassion, if we can be people who major on getting into the heart of God, hearing his voice, extending his love, I think relevance in many ways will take care of itself. 
We focus so much on trying to be relevant to reach a people that now that we have an opportunity to reach them, we have no power. Relevance in the kingdom should never remove the power of the kingdom. Number two, we have a compulsion to be spectacular. What does that look like? From the things that we do to the way that we dress to uh, our talents and our gifts and our ability to being known a certain way, there is a compulsion inside of us to be spectacular, to be liked, to be affirmed, to be awesome. The enemy came to Jesus and he says, throw yourself off this temple and create such a spectacular moment in time that now all of a sudden everyone is looking at you and they're enthralled with this spectacular miracle that you did. And Jesus recognized so wisely that is an unhealthy compulsion that you're trying to pull me into. Jesus never did anything to be spectacular. He did everything out of obedience. He didn't do anything to be spectacular. He did everything as a son. And the third compulsion of the heart is to be powerful. The enemy came to Jesus and he says, I will give you this, these kingdoms if you bow down and worship me. In other words, compromise your convictions and I will elevate you to a place of power and a place of authority in the eyes of the world and I will give you these kingdoms. Jesus understood that the way to having authority over those kingdoms wasn't to compromise his conviction, it was to walk the path of sacrifice, obedience, and sonship. And so as I began chewing on this, I'm gonna open up my heart to you and I'm gonna talk with you about the fact that you don't know what you don't know and you can't change what you don't know. This is dated February the 11th, 2008. And I just began interacting with some of these concepts and I asked myself, Jay Duncan, what is my false compulsive self? My need for approval, my need to be liked and loved and respected. My false compulsive self is my need to be a good leader or to be thought of as a good leader or perceived as a good leader. My false compulsive self is my lack of self-control, not treating people with value, my pride, my vanity, my self-centeredness, needing to be better than others, gaining my approval and my acceptance from being better than others, and at times even wanting others to fail so that I can be seen better than others in the way that I excel. My false compulsive self drives me to be competitive and to be judgmental because I gain my sense of acceptance and approval out of being better and not out of being a son. My false compulsive self leaves me easily annoyed with people. It is my lack of love, my lack of patience, my lack of tolerance, and my lack of compassion. It is my displaced identity in a title or a position or a function. It is my thinking that I can always do things better than someone else. My fears of not being admired, my fears of not being respected, my fears of not being needed, my fears of being replaced. My false compulsive self is my lack of grace for those who struggle in their weaknesses. It is my looking to the wrong things to validate me. It is my patting myself on the back, my self-affirmation, my sense of privilege, my displaced trust. It is placing trust more in relevance or in gifting or in being spectacular or in being powerful. My false compulsive self is my quickness to point out the flaws in others. It is my savior complex, my need to be the answer for others. It is my materialism, my indulgence. It is the mentality that I deserve this. My false compulsive self are my false motives that I mask in righteous motives. My false compulsive self is putting more trust in my personality, putting more trust in my charisma. It leads me to shutting people down cutting them off, being insensitive, bullying, and being inconsiderate. It is leading out of intimidation and judgment. It is my selfishness, my self-centeredness. It is my own deception. The things in my life that could and do deceive me. It is operating out of a Jacob manipulation. It is covering my tracks, lying, and being deceitful. You guys sure you want me to be your pastor? You know, we can't heal what we can't see and we can't heal what we don't know. And this, this journal represents a season in my life. If you guys remember in 2008, for those of you who are new, 
there was a period of time called the 90 days. We shut everything down the church and for 90 solid days, all we did was for 24 hours a day get into the presence of God. I remember the first two weeks of the 90 days, it was just hellacious. Because the closer I got to God, the more the darkness in my heart surfaced. And the longer I stayed in the light of God, the more of my brokenness and the more of my sin came to the surface. We had some of the ugliest fights during the first two weeks of the 90 days. And I thought, where is this dichotomy that the closer I get to God and the more I open my heart to him, and yet here I am treating those that I love this way. And the Lord reminded me years ago, the Lord reminded me, son, the enemy will always accuse you when you come closer to me because the closer you get to the light, the more your flaws will be seen. Christy and I lived in an apartment complex called Windtree when we first moved here and our, our bedroom didn't have a light, but the bathroom light was blinding. <laughs> it, was, it was so tiny. It was like in this three by three room with this huge heat lamp that you literally could see everything. And so when I'd pull out my outfit for the next day, I would always go into the bathroom and just hold it up against the light and see if there was anything on my clothes. And the Lord reminded me, son, the closer you get to the light, you will see. But you will not see to be shamed, you will see to be healed. And you will see to be cleansed. How many of you guys have had times when you've come close to God, you've had what you might, you, you might consider some of the greatest encounters with God in his presence and not but 10 minutes after the service, you find yourself, come on, anybody ever been there before? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Listen, count that. Don't let the enemy accuse you or condemn you. Go praise God the Lord is showing that to me because I can't heal what I can't see and I can't address what I don't know. Okay, that's a gift to you. Number three, it requires, let me just go back up here and pull these back together. We must confront the brutal facts. You can't tend what you can't see. You can't tend what you don't know. And you can't tend what you're unwilling to acknowledge. You cannot heal. You cannot fix. You cannot bring to God what you continually and repetitively dismiss, excuse, justify, validate. You can't, you'll never get healing in your lives if you're constantly looking for reasons to justify why that should remain in your heart and in your, in your character. There's a scripture in Proverbs chapter 12. In fact, many years ago, I, I did a, a word study. Uh, I read through Proverbs very, very often. It's a habit that my mom got me on when I was a kid. But I began seeing that there was particular words that surfaced over and over again. One of those words is listen. I wanna encourage you, spend some time reading through the book of Proverbs and just circle every time you see the word listen. Circle every time you see the word pay attention. You'll see just in the first five chapters, you will see the author of Proverbs appealing to his son, pay attention, my son, pay attention, my son. Listen, don't close off your ears. Don't assume that you know everything. You'll see this happen so much. You'll, you'll, you'll hear often the author of Proverbs talk about being a person that receives discipline and receives correction. And in Proverbs chapter 12, verse one, the author says very simply that whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who refuses correction is stupid. Very harsh words, but it's true. You hear the heart of a father in Proverbs appealing to a son and, I th and we've all been there. If we're honest with ourselves, we've all been at the place where we, where we said, we, we thought that we knew more than we really did. I think there's no greater place of seeing this perhaps than in seeing little kids, four and five and six-year-olds who know answers that are much wiser than 30 and 40 and 50-year-olds. And I think that's just a, a slight picture of what we may, must look like to the Father when we assume that we know how to live and how to run our lives. I wanna bring this to a close this morning by submitting to you five areas of your life to examine. And I am purposefully addressing these in a very broad stroke. Each of these, as you can see, as we map these things out, each of these topics, I could take about four or five weeks on each of these topics alone. But the goal today really is that we hear God's invitation to come to a 
more rigorous process of examining our heart with him. I'm not talking about an unhealthy introspection. I'm not talking about an introspection that leads us to condemnation and accusation. I'm talking about developing rhythms in our life that as we partner with the word and as we partner with solitude, we give God an opportunity to speak into areas of our life that need to be adjusted, that need to be changed. I have found that as a husband and a leader, that if I will open the door for people to address things in my heart, they will be much more willing to step in and share things that they're seeing. And it is a gift and I need it. But if I keep that door closed, most people will not knock that door down to try to tell you how your life needs to change. The same principle remains with the Father. If we'll create times where we'll say, God, search me, test me, know me, Reveal to me the things in my life that you want to put your finger on. I know that the Father in his love and grace and mercy, he'll reveal those things and he will do it in a perfect manner. He will do it in a manner that brings life. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Chapter 13, verse 5. Paul is speaking to the church of Corinth in his second letter and his second appeal to this great church. And he says to them, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. In other words, watch over the garden of your life. Socrates said it like this, the unexamined life is not worth living. A number of months ago, Dennis Peacock invited me and a number of young leaders to his house. It was a great privilege. There was only about 11 other young men that he invited over and we sat on his back porch there in Santa Rosa and he says, the reason why I've called you guys here this weekend is very simply, in the past 70 years of my life, I want to pass some things on to you that I've learned the hard way. And he opened up that talk with us young men that night. And he said, you must understand that in a battle and in life, there are places that you absolutely cannot get hit. And then he began to explain to us various places in our lives that we cannot afford to get hit. He, began, he said this statement to me that I, that I wrote down in my journal that night. And he said, you young men are absolutely too young to become jaded. As I began searching my heart, I began searching my life. I realized that in certain areas and in certain fields of my life, I'd become very jaded because of experiences that I had with leaders, with environments, with the church. Many of you who may have been on missions and you have seen the plight of those in third world countries that don't have everything that we had. One of the things that Christy and I always tell you is don't come back and get judgmental at the American church. You were like that three weeks ago, <laughs> right? You're way too young to get jaded. And even though I'm just a 36 year old young man, that truth applies for all of us. So all of you who are 16 and above or 70 and above are like, well, that means maybe I'm old enough to get jaded. No, no, you're not old enough to ever get jaded, okay? Life in the spirit says to you, don't ever get jaded. All right, here we go. Five areas of your life to pay attention to. Number one, pay attention to your heart and specifically pay attention to the attitude of your heart. For your notes, Proverbs chapter four, verse 23. Proverbs 4, 23 says, above all else. That's an important statement. In other words, most importantly, guard your heart. For it is the wellspring of life. If you pollute a well, everything you draw out of that well will be polluted. Everything that comes out of your mouth will be polluted. Everything that you see, the way that you perceive things that happen to you, it will be polluted. It will be tainted. All of it flows. Life flows from the health and the condition and the nature of our hearts. And so the first area that we must watch over and fight for and protect is the attitude of our heart. Let me give you a couple of thoughts here. The attitude is usually the first to go perhaps because it is most subtle and most easily justifiable. I heard one time that in your life, when things begin to surface and manifest, typically what happens is other people always see it first. Many times we're the last ones to see the areas of our heart that are, that are not in, in right alignment with the attitude of Christ. You can hide your attitude until it manifests in an action. Here's some thoughts for you, church. What is the disposition of your heart 
toward authority? Do you chafe at authority? What is the disposition of your heart towards people who ask you to serve, towards serving? What is the position or the attitude of your heart when being asked to do something that you don't want to do? What is the disposition of your heart when receiving correction? What is the disposition of your heart when you know that in your heart you need to forgive someone? Philippians chapter two, for your notes, beginning in verse three through verse eight, the scripture says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in everything, but in everything, honor those that are around you. Each of us should look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then verse five says it this way. It says, and your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, this was not sons and daughters don't have to worry about positions. They don't have to worry about titles. They don't have to be, worry about being relevant or being spectacular or being powerful. Essentially, he was saying the attitude of our heart should be the same as that of Christ. We want to glorify our Father. If there's a position that's been given to me, it is a position of responsibility and any privilege that has been given is to advance the purposes of the king and our father. That is what our attitude should be towards authority. That is what our attitude should be towards serving. What is your attitude in those areas? The other day, uh, I was asking the kids to do something and just at six years old, and yes, I've experienced this much earlier, but it seems that the older that the kids get, uh, the more textured their attitude becomes, the, the more animated, the more demonstrative, the more defined, the more creative. And I asked Milan to do something and she did this little, and I said, excuse me. And we had a little talk there because, you know, sometimes you need somebody else to help you see the attitude that's in you because you don't realize what's really going on inside of you. I heard a great man say, we judge ourselves by our intentions, but we judge others by their actions. And as I began chewing on this, I thought as a kid, well into high school, well into my college years, I thought about the own negative attitude that I had towards my own parents when they asked me to do things, good things, right things, when they gave me counsel. And I thought about that, that bucking of my own heart and how that manifested with the rolling of my eyes or the folding of my arms or the stamping off or the pouting or the whining and, and all of those things. Attitudes are so difficult to identify because they happen on the inside of us. And many of us have learned how to put on such a great face that we assume because our false compulsive self is agreeable to everyone else, we overlook the nature of the attitude of our heart. God sees Another area of our heart that we must pay attention to is the things that are coming out of our mouth. How do you know what the condition of your heart is? You know by watching your responses. But number two, you also know what's in your heart by what comes out of your mouth. God, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33 through 35. He starts speaking about uh, how you know a, a tree. You know a tree by its fruit. And then he says this. He says, out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth will speak. I know that in my own life, I like to pawn a lot of things off by, oh, I'm just joking or I'm just being humorous. I'm just being sarcastic. And, and, uh, but the truth of the matter is there, there is, there is a twinge of truth in there. When I find myself, uh, being angry at someone, talking about someone, venting my frustration to my wife, uh, what the Holy Spirit is putting his finger on inside of me is, Jade, no matter how you try to language that or no matter what image of your false compulsive self you put on that, if it's coming out of your mouth, there's an element of that that's working in your heart. You wanna know what's in your heart? Pay attention to your words. Your words will be betray your heart. Your words will reveal your heart. And this is in every area. So the question for you is what's coming out of my mouth? Is your humor when you're around certain guys at work, is it crude? Is it obscene? Is it vulgar? Is it kind or is it belittling? Is it angry? Pay attention. Don't just dismiss the words that come out of you. Third thing that we need, need to pay attention to as it relates to the attitude of our heart is we need to pay attention to our offenses. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. In fact, this might be a good time to put a plug in for uh, Jim Bixler, who is in our family. Jim, would you just mind just raising your hand right here? Jim is working on his PhD and he's working on his PhD specifically in the field of forgiveness. And he's gonna be, He's going to be uh, announcing this here in the weeks to come and having a lot more information. But if you, if you in your life know that there might be some things that, are, that have hindered you or have tripped you up relationally because of hurts, violations, abuses, woundeds, woundedness, negative experiences, Jim is actually developing a very methodical and meticulous and systematic approach to how we can become conscious of those things and how we can thoroughly address those things with a heart of forgiveness. And friends, I would highly encourage every single one of you to walk through that. One of the most freeing things that has happened in my life is when my wife and I went to go see Bill Suddeth and receive inner healing and deliverance. Friends, there's nothing to fear. There's only freedom to gain. And what I noticed and what I learned there is that there are some offenses. There are many people that I needed to forgive. There were many letters that I wrote hours upon hours of writing letters to people and then taking those letters and shredding them up, giving them to God, letting him heal memories, moments, experiences in my life. You wanna know what's going on in your heart? Pay attention to how offended you are. Pay attention to your reactions and moments. Pay attention to uh, what, what your heart is towards people. What emotional uh, responses are being conjured up when you see or hear the name of a certain person who's offended you. Pay attention to the judgments that you've made against certain people. It will reveal the attitude of your heart. Second area that we need to pay attention to is we need to pay attention to our affections. So we need to pay attention to our attitude, but we also need to pay attention to our affections. You know, as a young man, I, I, I found my, as I look back, and one of the reasons why Pastor Dan and I are so passionate about training a, a, a community of young people that know how to deal properly with one another is because I did not really receive a good, healthy training in how to relate to uh, the opposite sex. And so consequently, I did what was natural. And what is natural is not love. What is natural is selfishness. What is natural is to feed your affections in an unhealthy manner with somebody else, to allow that person to supply something that only God should be supplying until the time that love is awakened and you find the person you're to be in covenant with the rest of your life. The person that I wanna highlight here, there's many people, we could talk about Samson, we could talk about David, but I wanna talk about a man by the name of Solomon for one minute. And in 1 Kings chapter 11, if you'll turn there with me, 1 Kings chapter 11, we see a man who did not guard or he did not tend the garden of his affections. Solomon was one of the wisest men that had walked on the earth. Solomon fulfilled his father David's desire to build God a temple. And in, in the peak of his life, when he was most successful, by the way, let me share something with you that I'm learning. Christy and I, when we went out on a date last week for her birthday, I said to her, I said, I'm looking at life so much differently now. I'm realizing I, there was a time in my life when I was 18, 16, 20, going through ORU, uh, preparing myself to go into seminary, knowing that this is something I'd give my life to. I thought my greatest temptations and challenges would come in my mid-30s. But as I'm surveying the scene, I'm noticing that most men who fail or most men who fall or make wrong decisions, most of those men I'm seeing are happening in their late 40s to mid-50s. Pay attention to this. I was speaking with a, with a wise man a few weeks ago and he said to me, well, think about it. The passion and the drive and the pursuit has waned. You've experienced a measure of success and you begin to get comfortable and you begin to let your guards down. That's what happened to David in 2 Samuel 11 when he committed sin with Bathsheba. He should have been at war and he was hanging out in his bed. Solomon builds God a temple. He's accomplished great things. He's judging well. He's ruling the nation. He's got so much money. He's got so much wisdom. And he lost his passion and his intimacy for God. Look at 1 Kings 11. King Solomon, verse 1, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites. The brother was a freak. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them. 
because they will surely, this is, this is the Lord speaking, they will surely turn your heart after their gods. Never, everybody say nevertheless. Listen, anytime there's a nevertheless in our lives, we ought to pay major attention. Anytime there's a nevertheless where we say, God, I know you said this, but... Anytime we start entering into negotiation contracts with God, we, that is a major red flag that there's an area of our garden that is wide open to the influence of the enemy. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He was unwilling to let them go. What is in your life that you're unwilling to let go? What is in your life God is saying, would you give that to me? And you're saying, no, that is a major area of your garden where the wall is in disrepair. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. If we dismiss this, we are saying that we are in a much better place than the wisest man who has ever lived on the earth. If we dismiss this teaching, we're saying that we're much more capable than Judas or Peter who walked in intimacy with God. We are saying that we're above falling. And the scripture says, be careful when you think you stand, lest you fall. Third area of our life we must give attention to in our garden is we must give attention to our attention. What are you paying attention to? What is entering the ear gates? What is entering the eye gates? What are you fixating your life on? The psalmist said this in Psalm 119. He says, God, turn my eyes away from worthless things. The psalmist knew that what I behold, what I set my eyes, what I set my gaze upon, I will become. We see this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we will become like him as we see him as he is. In his, the reason why uh, the presence of God is so important, the glory of God is so important, is because as we behold him, we become transformed into his likeness. What are you setting your attention on? Men, when you come home, do you sit in front of a television for three or four hours? Your children are wanting to spend time with you. Your wife is wanting to spend time with you and you're just, you're just giving your attention. Listen, I, I love sports. I love movies. I love those things. But anytime I'm giving my attention to those things more than, the, than, than, than my garden and the garden of my life and the garden of my wife and the garden of my children, something is out of order and there is a breach in the wall of my garden. Think about the concept of being a watchman. What are you watching Is it more important to you what's happening in your fantasy football league than what's happening in the state of your own garden? And all of you men are getting very angry at me, so I should probably move on to the next point right here. Listen, if you want to think about this more, you can write down Romans 8, verses 5 through 8, and Colossians 3, 2. Romans 8, 5 through 8. Those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit they will fulfill the things of the spirit. Those who set their minds on the things of the flesh, they'll fulfill the things of the flesh. You know, this is not, this is not Satan. This is not Satan. This is sowing and reaping. This is cause and effect. This is sow a seed of lust, reap a harvest of immorality. Sow a seed of violence, reap a harvest of, this, this is very, God has set these laws into motion. Pay attention to what you're setting your mind on because that is what will manifest in your life. If you're slanderous, if you're hurt, if you're offended, if you're constantly stewing on that person that you wanna have that conversation with where in the end you win and they're bowing down and they're kissing their pinky ring, you know, you, you will have that stuff manifest in your life. You're like, is that, is that like your little <laughs> mental fantasy? What is going on? It's much harsher than that. <laughs> Pay attention to your fears. Do you fear man? Do you fear trouble? Do you fear failure? These are all the things that we give our attention to. Pay attention to the fears that are running through your mind. Fourth area that we need to give our attention to is we need to give our attention to our appetite. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 16 and 17, scripture talks about a man by the name of Esau who was given the privilege of um, having the blessing of the firstborn. And the scripture says he handed over the blessing of the firstborn because of his appetite. The lusts of his flesh disqualified him from leading in the capacity that he was called and he was created to lead in. Pay attention to the appetite of your flesh. In fact, let's just say this together. God sanctify, God, sanctify my, appetite. my appetite. 
sanctify my appetite. In the book of Philippians chapter two, Paul speaks to the Philippian church and he says, their gods are their stomachs and they are destined for destruction. Essentially what he's saying there is when we allow the appetite of our flesh and listen, pay attention to even the things you're eating church. Anytime you have something that you can't get rid of, even for a season, anytime that there are things that you absolutely must have that is unhealthy, God has not created you for anything in your life to control you. Not a Big Mac, not a Red Robin, not a pizza, not a candy bar, not a mocha, not a latte. I mean, I, know, I love my coffee, but the moment it becomes an area of my life that I can't do without, it's got to go. Because that will translate into, every, uh, into other areas of appetites in your life. Finally, in closing, pay attention, number five, to your actions. Your attitude the attitude of your heart, pay attention to the affections of your heart, pay attention to the things you set your mind on. Number four, pay attention to your appetite. Number five, pay attention to your actions. Be a people. Listen, if we're gonna be people that watch over and we watch over well, we must be a people that pay attention to the trends and the cycles in our lives. During this, during this series, the Holy Spirit is inviting me to go back and re-examine cycles in my life. And here's why, because a cycle will always repeat itself until it's broken. And there are cycles in my life that are destructive. There are cycles in my life that I'm ashamed of. There are cycles in my life where I made poor decisions. And I can't assume that because there is a measure of time between the last time I committed that, 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 that event or that action, I must, I must pay attention to cycles. There are some cycles that are six-year revolutions. There are some cycles that are weekly revolutions. There are some cycles that are yearly revolutions. There are some cycles that are five-year revolutions. There are some cycles that are 10-year revolutions. And here's the thing. When that next cycle comes my way, I want to be able to see it, spot it, recognize it, and address it. And I want to be able to swiftly deal a blow and say, this cycle in Jay Duncan's life is over and my children will not deal with the cycle of sin and generational iniquity that was in my life because I've learned how to spot and watch the patterns in my life and I am now ready to offensively engage those cycles in my life and win in the power of Jesus' name. Come on, stand to your feet and clap your hands to God this morning.